All right. Well, hello again. We're going to wrap up our weekend together with some uh, question and answer time based on your questions. Um, We had to stop receiving questions about 87 seconds ago, and I hope you understand why. Uh, in order for things to get going, but I'll, and also we've got a ton of questions here, probably I'm going to say at least 22, 23 questions here. So, um, we'll do our best, uh, and we'll, we'll finish around 1130, 1140. Uh, all right. Well, why don't we open with a word of prayer? Father, we thank you for tonight again, just this time to hang out together and to celebrate you and your son and the awesomeness of your word. Uh, we ask that you would minister to us in a personal and powerful way right now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so the first question is, what about tithing? How does that fit in with this grace message? Is there such a thing as graceful giving? Um, great question. You know, the money issue uh, becomes very sensitive And uh, a lot of uh, folks, you know, they're ready. Okay, I get it. I'm going to live by grace. But then they say, I'm going to give 10% because I got to make sure, man. I mean, you know, I got to make sure I'm given the right amount. What's interesting is that this instruction to give 10% um, is actually um, not mentioned in any single epistle as some sort of instruction for believers. What I mean is you can work your way through uh, you can work your way through Romans and Galatians and Ephesians and Philippians and Colossians and you get the idea. And it's really, there's no mention of a specific percentage. And it's interesting that this question comes up a lot because I think that what we're trying to do is we're trying to figure out the right amount so that we can do right. And God has made it more beautiful than that. And God has made it more liberating than that. Um, The Bible teaches us actually in the New Testament under the New Covenant, it says, give freely, not under pressure, give from the heart, not grudgingly, not reluctantly. So look at this weird place now. If it's not grudgingly, then I'm not going to sit on my wallet and go, okay, all right. If it's not reluctantly and not grudgingly, But at the same time, it's not under pressure and not under compulsion. Then what is it? It's this weird third place where I get to be motivated from the heart. I get to say, you know what? Wow, this message is actually the greatest message on the planet. And I feel pretty privileged to give toward it. Wow. Thank you, Lord. And there's actually a grace of giving and even a gift of generosity that some people have. And so the beauty of this is that the grace giving is the same as the grace living. It's not one message and then you pull out your wallet and it's a different message. The grace giving is the same as the grace living. So consider that there's not a single New Testament command in any epistle to give a certain percentage And so that's like telling people, you know, how much should you love people? What percentage? How much should you be gentle to people? What can we quantify that? And it's the same way with uh, supporting the gospel through prayer and through financial support. If there isn't a benchmark, if there isn't a number, then what are we left with? We are left with the one foot journey coming down here and I'm going to give from the heart where Christ inspires me. All right. Um, Is God helping us fulfill the law? You said he isn't. Okay, yeah. God is not helping us fulfill the law. Think about that. Is God, you know, I said it a a few times today and yesterday. I said, you know, imagine if God is helping you fulfill the law. You know, the Holy Spirit living in you is helping you obey 613 commands. Oh, no, 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 I didn't mean that. I just meant the Ten Commandments. Okay, God is helping you keep the Sabbath on Friday night through Saturday on sundown, at sundown. Do you see what we're doing when we paint a picture that God is present tense, helping us fulfill the law, then we're missing an important piece. And that is Jesus already fulfilled the law and he fulfilled the law in us. 
crediting it to us as righteousness. He gave us his righteousness. So why would we need to fulfill what he's already fulfilled and do what he's already done? And remember, just another reminder that as a Gentile, you were never even invited to the law anyway. All right. Some people accuse us of being antinomians. Can you talk about that? Okay, so if you haven't heard this, then great. If you can't pronounce it, that's fine too. But antinomianism is uh, law-hating. Anti means against, and nomian refers to the law. So is this message law-hating? Remember my analogy with the uh, Mount Everest situation. If I were to seek to climb Mount Everest and conclude that I can't do it, and I come back to you and I tell you, Everest is huge. I can't climb it. Now, have I just hated Everest? Have I just denigrated and, you know, uh, belittled Everest? Have I disrespected Everest? Certainly not. In fact, I'm just pointing out that this impossible standard is something that I can't achieve to. So as a grace believer, as a person who has decided to bet on Jesus, to put all my stock in Christ, to lean on him and trust in him, I have actually looked at the law and not a piece of the law, not a smidgen of the law, not cherry picking from the law, but I have looked at all of the law in its perfect and impossible standard and I have said, wow, that is perfect and that is impossible and I respect that law and therefore I need God's grace. And so when I make this choice and I turn away from law toward God's grace, I have just given the best and biggest honor to the law that I possibly can. Now, some dude or dudette, some person who turns to the law and flirts with a little bit of Moses, I know what I'll do, I'll I'll just obey the 10 or I'll obey the 11 or I'll throw tithing in, I'll obey 12. They're just picking and choosing 12 out of 613. That is disrespecting God's law. God's law is an all or nothing proposition. It's not multiple choice. James said, if you keep the whole law and stumble in one point, you're guilty of all of it. Galatians says, cursed is everyone who does not obey everything written in the book of the law. If you're under the law, you're under the whole thing. It is not choose your own adventure. It is not cherry picking. All right, very similar question here. Um, How will we define sin without the law? And I talked about that a little bit in this last session. How will we know what to do or how will we define sin without the law? Well, remember, um, you know, it's like we're trying to hang on. Give me, just give me one purpose for the law in my life. Come on, let it define sin for me, okay? Man, if it defined sin for you, it would kill you. Uh, sin is defined 600 plus ways. Um, and we've already seen those. Leaving the house at a certain time of, of the month, if you're a woman, that would be sin. Uh, You know, not cleaning out your cabinets at a certain time of year, that would be sin. Uh, And on and on, we could go through, you know, getting uh, marks on your body, uh, like a tattoo or something, that would be sin. Um, You know, all of these things would be sin if we were defining sin by the law. So, trust me, you don't want to define sin by the law. Uh, It defines it in 613 ways. And thank God that we are dead to the law, free from the law, not under the law. Christ is the end of the law for all those who believe. So there's another question in here, and I I can't remember what order it was in. But basically, uh, the question was very similar. And it was, how how will we um, know what to do without the law? And so, you know, the same answer There, how will we define sin under the new covenant? I believe the question was. You know, the Bible says in the New Testament, anything that is not of faith is sin. So now that's a that's a game changer. 
You're telling me I could give a billion dollars and it could be sin. I could give a billion dollars to charity and it could be sin. You're telling me I could break dance and it could be righteousness. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You just saw it. You just saw it right there. That was just for you. Yeah, you're welcome. And, you know, that that was free. That was free. And if you want more, I'll be available in the lobby. Uh, We could get a cardboard box out, and I'll do some rolls and spins and stuff. Not a lot, but just a little. But do you see that anything that's not of faith is sin? And so that's a game changer because basically it's anything that's not of Jesus is sin. So then i got to figure out, okay, how can everything be of Jesus then? Oh, wait a minute. Brushing my teeth could be of Jesus. Huh. Taking the kids to school could be of Jesus. Like, you know, my sense of humor and my hobbies and my interests and the way that I enjoy television and the way that I uh, enjoy video games and the way that I go to school and the way that I live, everything is spiritual. Everything is spiritual. So everything could be flesh or spirit. Isn't that interesting? It's a game changer So suddenly I realized, wait, there's not three ways to live. See, growing up, I thought there were three ways to live. I thought there was uh, the bad stuff called sin and then the, the good stuff, you know, like going to church and stuff. And then in the middle, there was neutral stuff, you know, all the neutral stuff. So I thought there were three walks. And then I get into the scriptures and I realize there's only two walks. There's walk by the spirit, walk by the flesh, and that's it. There is is no third walk. So everything is spiritual. So what do I do then? Do I just wake up every day and turn this into like a, um, you know, infestation of examination? I have the paralysis of analysis. (gasps) Is this flesh? Is this spirit? Is this flesh? Is this spirit? Have you ever found yourself doing that? It's like living under the law of thou shalt enjoy grace. Thou shalt live by the Spirit. Thou shalt understand the new covenant fully, immediately. Thou shalt live the exchange life. Thou shalt know and discern perfectly. And so then we're, we're under this bondage of trying to figure out what's flesh, what's spirit, what's flesh, what's spirit. Look, how about, you know, you get on the basketball court, you dribble down the court, you take some shots... Maybe you fall and skin your knees, you get back up again. But until the ref blows that whistle, play the game, man. Play the game. God is big enough to to get your attention if he needs to. And if we're just like, I better not sin, I better not sin, I better not sin. This better be spirit, this better be spirit. It can't be flesh, it can't be flesh. Then what's our goal? Man, I'm back in the garden trying to get good from evil so I can always do good and avoid evil. And man, I got to have all the right motives and it's got to be all perfect. And I end up creating my own American Christian exchange life law. And that can be neurotic. That can bring a serious neurosis to your life. I say that because I've lived that. As a young man, I examined every five seconds that I lived, every word, every action, every decision, every life choice, and every moment, I was obsessed with is this spirit or is this flesh? Because since I was this high, I heard that it was so important to walk by the spirit. Now, that's why your identity is such a big deal. It's not the spirit needing to take over like you're a fire hose. You're not a fire hose. You're a child of God. You get to be you. God is not accepting some Bible view of you that's far off. God is accepting you with your hobbies and your interests and your sense of humor and everything that is fully you. Do you realize there is nothing wrong with you? I know, I know. It's hard to believe. But hang on. There's nothing wrong with you. Now, in, in some grace circles, you know, we pop up a diagram and we say, oh, yeah, yeah, there's nothing wrong with you in this circle. Okay, but there's three circles. And so the other circles, you're messed up. But this one circle, that's where you're right. You know, the Bible doesn't teach that. Diagrams are great, but they're limited. 
And, you know, when we say that we are right in spirit, but we're not, God doesn't embrace us in soul, and God doesn't embrace our bodies, then we're wrong. We are wrong. The Bible says that you present your body to God as a living, not dead, a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to him. God loves your body. Can you take that in? God likes your body. God created your body. Yes, you're getting a new one. Yes, it's fallen. Yes, there's fallen DNA and and you're going to end up as miracle grow. Your body will end up, you know, as fertilizer someday and you'll get a new one in heaven. But God likes your body. He considers your body as holy and acceptable to him. So now, we got two circles going. Let's see. If, if, if you don't know what I'm talking about, I'm talking about spirit and then soul and then body. Three circles. So now we're going to, as master theologians, we're going to tell people, yeah, the center circle, your spirit, whew, you are good to go. God loves you. God accepts you. God embraces you. And uh, yeah, okay, I guess the body, God loves you. You're holy. You're acceptable. But that middle part, that soul, eh, that's all, all bets are off. No, even your soul, God embraces you. Soul is the word for psychology. We get our word psychology um, from the Greek word suke, which is soul. God embraces your psychology. Your soul is not your enemy. Your soul is not your opponent. I don't believe your soul is just dirty and evil and wicked. One day, Christ is going to come back. He's going to say, come with me. And guess what? Your soul's going. Your soul's going with you. Your psychology's going with you. So you say, well, then what's wrong with me? I mean, I do experience temptation and struggle, and, you know, there's serious renewing of the mind that has to happen. Yeah, because the flesh and the power of sin operate through your soul. But that doesn't make your soul the enemy. So it's like this room. There's the exit sign. If I open that door to the outside... And then if there were another door to the outside over here and I open that, let's open both doors. Well, give it 10 minutes and there's going to be some stuff floating through here. I mean, there'll be debris and dust and leaves and you get it, give it enough time. Lots of stuff will go through here. So this room is like your soul. It's like an experience tank. Anything can flow through your soul. Truth can flow through it. Error can flow through it. But your soul doesn't give you your identity and your soul doesn't give you your spiritual nature. Your spiritual nature comes from your spirit. So, you know, I guess I would say the soul is like a mirror. If you haven't followed what I'm saying yet, what identity or what nature does a mirror have? Well, a mirror just reflects something. Our soul can reflect the spirit or it can reflect sin. Our soul can reflect God in a given moment, but three seconds later, my soul can reflect the flesh, and then the spirit, and then the flesh, and then the spirit, and then the flesh. And you say, well, what's the nature of the mirror? No, you're asking the wrong question. Our nature comes from the spirit, not the soul. And so there is a deeper place than what you reflect. You see that? There's a deeper place than what you reflect. There are two walks, but you are always in the Spirit. My soul can walk by the flesh. My soul can walk by the Spirit. But I, spiritually, at the core of my being, I am always in the Spirit. That's my location. All right. Well, I hope that helps. Next one. uh, Are your books on tape or audio? Yes. Amazon.com, uh, audible.com. There's audiobooks uh, for at least three or four of them. Um, and if you're looking for a Spanish version, um, then there is the Heaven is Now book. El Cielo es Ahora. Gol. No. El, ci- <laughs> El Cielo es Ahora is the Heaven is Now, and that's available in Spanish. And then the others, there's three or four available on audio. All right, Uh, what is the eternal destination of the slave that buries his one talent in Matthew 25? Hell, because he did not believe but was defeated on earth. Um, Okay, so that's the question. 
I think I believe that the talents uh, represent the gospel. And we think they're all Christian. You know, the first tendency is to think, oh, everybody's a Christian in that parable. And see, I'm always, you know, with the parables, I'm always trying to put myself in the parable. Where am I? Where am I? Seems like I'm obsessed with which character is me, right? And so I, I might assume that, oh, man, all these guys are all Christians. Well, uh, one guy does nothing with what he's given. What do you call that? When a person is, is given the greatest message on the planet and they do nothing with it. There's no investment in it. There's no return on it. It's just sitting there in the ground. That's an unbeliever who didn't do anything with the message. And so to me, the talents represent the gospel. And the gospel has an incredible guaranteed return on it. But there has to be a reception of it not rejection of it. And, uh, you know, there's, you know, we all do different things. Some people experience the Lord for 32 years. Others experience him for 32 seconds. And there's different returns on that. I don't mean in heaven like cash rewards. I just mean the benefit of knowing Jesus. So, um, you know, the gospel is an investment and there's a guaranteed return on it. But some people reject the gospel and get no return. All right, what about uh, confession to others? This is the question. Is there any place for confession to others? Absolutely. The book of James says that, right? Confess your sins one to another so that God will forgive you. No, God's already forgiven you. We've covered that. It says confess your sins one to another so that you can pray for one another. So finding a trusted friend and saying, hey, man, I'm dealing with this, you know, I'm struggling with this. Would you pray for me? Absolutely. I'll be praying for you. And, you know, uh, thanks for being open and honest with me. Finding trusted friends who are in Christ to pray for you and talking about your struggles. That is way different than pleading and begging and asking and hoping and waiting for God to maybe just maybe forgive you. You see the difference? So isn't it cool that because of our total forgiveness, I am off the hook and I can confidently uh, talk to God about my struggles because I know he's already forgiven me. And secondly, um, you know, I got to be wise about this. I don't want to be foolish. I want to find trusted friends. Do you remember that? Trusted friends. Because some people like to turn prayer, requ- prayer requests into rumors. The prayer chain becomes the rumor chain, right? So be discerning about that, of course. Use godly wisdom. But there's uh, certainly a healthy place for talking about the struggles that we're going through, right? All right, what about the Lord's Prayer? It says, forgive us our sins. Isn't this an asking for forgiveness? Great question. A critical one, important one. So I I think uh, when we read the Lord's Prayer, it's interesting how across the world we we recite this in church. And yet we neglect Jesus' conclusion to the prayer. We stop two verses shy of the whole thing. The Lord's Prayer is not just, Lord, forgive me. The Lord's Prayer is, forgive me as I have been forgiving other people. Ouch. Now, that could leave a mark. Now, at the end of the Lord's Prayer, Jesus' conclusion, you know, if you ever wondered what the Lord's Prayer is really about, don't worry, Jesus tells you. At the end of the prayer, when he's done, he says, here's his conclusion. For if you forgive others, God will forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, God will not forgive you. Now, is that the gospel? Are you saved and forgiven because you're such a swell guy, such a great person in forgiving other people? Did Billy Graham stand up in front of stadiums and say, hey, guys, you want to be forgiven? Make sure you go home and forgive everybody else first, and then God will forgive you. Of course not. In fact, we find the opposite of the Lord's Prayer in the New Testament epistles. Colossians 3.13 says, forgive others because God already forgave you. 
Ephesians 4.32 says, forgive others as the Lord forgave you. Which one came first? In your life, which one came first? First, the Lord forgave you. And then you saw that and said, wow, I am going to forgive others as the Lord forgave me. So I don't forgive others to earn forgiveness. You see, if God really meant that as a gospel truth for you and me today, then who would you learn to forgive? Well, you and I should only forgive the forgiving people. Do you see that? If we're passing on God's forgiveness, we should only be forgiving those who forgive. And so it would be an endless chain of conditional forgiveness as we wait and observe and watch people in their ability to forgive others and say, my, my, you're a forgiving person. I'll forgive you for what you did to me. And then everyone would be earning forgiveness through their performance. So what in the world is going on with the Lord's Prayer? Well, number one, it's before the cross. Number two, it's embedded in this language of cut off your hand and pluck out your eye and be perfect and don't be angry or it's the same as murder. Don't look or it's the same as adultery. Be perfect just like God is perfect and forgive others to be forgiven. And if you don't forgive others, you're not forgiven by God. It's all a package And the whole point is, it's a Jewish audience. You can picture them all sitting on these rocks and Jesus is teaching. And the Pharisees are getting mad. And the the rich man is getting sad. (laughs) Mission accomplished. What was the mission? You think you can do the law? Give me a break. Let me show you the true standard of the law. So isn't it interesting That Jesus said, please don't engage in meaningless repetition of prayers. And then we take the very prayer that he prayed and across the world, worldwide in Catholic and Protestant churches alike, we end up engaging in meaningless repetition of that same prayer without thinking about the context, the audience, or Jesus' own conclusion which buried everybody, nobody survives. Matthew 5 and 6, no one can survive that. And that's the whole point. The law kills so that the Spirit can give life. All right, well, in in conjunction with that, uh, a woman wanted me to address this. She asked in the hallway, uh, I believe it was yesterday, about 1 John 1, 9. Uh, 1 John 1, 9 If you're not familiar with this passage, uh, it is truly a one and only passage. It's very unique. It says, uh, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. So for some, they have taken 1 John 1, 9, which again, remember, it's one of a kind. There's no verse like it in Romans, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. It's a very unique verse, and a lot of people have taken 1 John 1, 9, and then they apply it to their lives like it's a bar of soap for Christians. I wake up every day, hey, what are you doing? I'm 1 John 1, 9, and I'm getting getting my sins forgiven. So you turn to the Catholic, you say, hey, Catholic, I, I thought you said that Jesus took away your sins. Yeah, yeah, I did, I did. Well, what are you doing? Well, I'm going to the confession booth. Why? Oh, to get my sins forgiven. I thought you said Jesus took away your sins. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, what you doing? I'm going to the confession booth. Why? To get my sins forgiven. Hey, Protestant, I thought you said Jesus took away your sins. What are you doing? Oh, I'm 1 John 1, 9 and Why are you 1 John 1, 9 to get my sins forgiven? I thought you said Jesus took away your sins. Oh, I did, I did. Total, complete double talk. So the question is, what is 1 John 1, 9 about? Now, I'm going to theorize. I'm going to propose something radical tonight. I'm going to propose that 1 John 1, 9 is a response to 1 John 1, 8. Yeah. Isn't that crazy talk? All right. Now, 1 John 1, 8 says, if we, any one of us, say that we have no sin. Anybody here ever say that they have no sin? Have you ever say, said that you have never sinned a day in your life? That is some crazy talk. You talk about crazy talk. But 2,000 years ago, there were people that were deceiving themselves 
and saying that they had no sin and the truth was not in them. All right, so I'm also going to propose a second theory, and Chris will help me with this. We'll put up 1 John 1.10. 1 John 1.9 is also a response to 1 John 1.10. Again, I know that sounds nuts, but let's give it a shot here. Let's give it a, a possibility. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. All right, so I get my buddy Fred up here, and Fred's sitting on the stool, and I say, Fred, I want you to meet these guys. Now, let me, let me tell you a little bit about Fred. Fred says he's never sinned a day in his life. Fred says he has no sin. Uh, by the way, the truth is not in Fred. God's word is not in Fred. And uh, Fred's making God into a liar. Now, when you come up and shake Fred's hand, do you conclude that Fred is a believer or an unbeliever? Unbeliever, man. What's step one to becoming a Christian? Lord, I am a sinner. Fred won't say that. See, Fred says he has no sin. He's never sinned. The truth is not in him. He's making God a liar. So I turn to Fred. After all of you guys have met him, I say, Fred, listen, man, you... You are out of your mind, buddy. Look, if we, any one of us, is saying the stuff that you're saying, then the truth is not in us. We're making God into a liar. But let me tell you, I'm begging you, if you will just confess your sinfulness, if you will just admit your wrongdoing, if you will just agree with God that you are a sinner, then guess what God will do? God will forgive you, Fred. He will forgive you and cleanse you of all. Sound familiar? All unrighteousness. Not little by little, not bar of soap every day, not Catholic style, not waiting for God to swoop down sin by sin by sin. But Fred, he is offering you once for all forgiveness, once for all cleansing. Fred goes, huh. You know, if I mean, if that's the deal, uh, I guess, you know, I guess I have sinned. I mean, you know. I've sinned, uh, and so, yeah, I'm a sinner. I admit it. I'm a sinner, and I, I'm willing to receive forgiveness and cleansing of all my unrighteousness. I'm ready to receive Jesus. And that very day, Fred comes to know the Lord Jesus Christ, and he receives once for all forgiveness and cleansing. 1 John 1.9 is an invitation to sin deniers. 1 John 1.9 is an invitation, it's an evangelistic appeal to crazy people like Fred, who, by the way, were called Gnostics. Any Bible commentary on 1 John will tell you 1 John addresses Gnosticism. Gnostics were these crazy people who were saying they'd never sinned, that sin wasn't real. They were denying that Jesus came in the flesh, and they were denying that sin was a reality. And so John is politely correcting them. The first few verses in 1 John 1, the first few verses correct them about Jesus coming in the flesh. You know what they say? Same chapter. It says, we've seen him, we've touched him, our hands have handled him, leaned up against him at the Last Supper. He was physical, we beheld him. Don't say he didn't come in the flesh because he did. And anyone who says, anybody like Fred, who says he didn't come in the flesh, they're not born of God. That is anti-Jesus. That is anti-Christ. So two lies were out there. Jesus is not physical, and sin is not real. And John was fighting both of those. People try to say, oh, no, no, every verse is written to Christians. Really? So John never had evangelism on his mind. He wrote a letter that would be read by thousands of people. And he never wanted anyone to come to Christ as an unbeliever. I mean, Paul said, whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Who was that written for? To benefit who? These letters were written to large groups of people. Some of them were into crazy stuff. Denying Jesus came in the flesh. Denying that sin is even real. John wrote this to correct people, and in this case, it's an invitation to receive once for all forgiveness of all unrighteousness. 
to be cleansed once for all. All right, what are the specific actions you can take to let go of holding yourself to the law? None. No, I mean, you know, it's hard because, man, I want to, I, I, I guess for this person, I just want to, I want to take the pressure off. Um, you are not under a law of thou shalt live by grace. What I mean is it's okay to mess up and... Uh, I'm not even sure for you that we should be trying to define messing up. Uh, You're trying to get it just right. And uh, you need to be willing to get it wrong. You need to be willing to get it wrong. I'm not talking about a life of sin. I'm talking about perfectionism dominating us. We need to be willing to mess up, be willing for it to be messy and gray. Oh, how much should I give? It's messy and gray. Oh, what should I choose in every situation? It's messy and gray and we walk by faith and we got to trust Christ in the moment and there's no rules about it. And so uh, actions, I mean, I would say time and truth, time and truth. And truth is not just like take notes and then it's just a bunch of Bible facts. No, truth is a person and truth will set you free and the person will set you free And that takes time. I mean, you are set free. Don't get me wrong. You are not under the law, period. That's a spiritual fact. You have no relationship with the law. You are dead to the law. That's like mafia talk. Son, you're dead to me, right? You're cut off from the law. You have no relationship with the law. But you could craft some Christian law. We do that kind of stuff, don't we? Thou shalt have a quiet time. You know, one of these... Young young people came into my uh, church office, sat down, practically in tears, buried the head. Pastor, I need to tell you, I haven't had my quiet time in 10 days. I said, I haven't had my quiet time in 10 years. They go, really? <laughs> you see what we've done? We're going to measure by what, you know, oh, you got to get up 4 a.m. You got to read 28 minutes or it doesn't take. And you're looking, you got your stopwatch and your word. It's got to be a fat Bible, too. It's got to be thick and heavy, and it's got to be early, and it's got to be thick and heavy, and you got to really mean it. And then you got to beware if somebody asks you, how'd it go? How was your, how was your quiet, how's your walk? How was your quiet time? And then you got to get all, look, you can have a quiet time, you can have a loud time, you can have a group time, you can have a church time, you can have a coffee shop time, you can have a, I mean, you need time. You need time and you need truth. Uh, so you need time and you need truth. And, you know, that's that's the bottom line. Will you get yourself on the 80-year plan, uh, realize the pressure's off, realize it's time and truth, and um, the truth will set you free. So be willing to fail, be willing to get it wrong, let yourself off the hook. Part of grace is you don't have to grow grow, grow as fast as you want to grow. The growth comes from God. The growth is understanding. You can make some choices, right? I mean, you could go, you know what? I'm never going to be encouraged. I, for whatever weird reason, I don't want to be encouraged. I want to be discouraged. I don't want the truth. I'd rather just look at lies. Uh, I, you know, and, and you could make those foolish choices, but you know, that's just foolish. So make, make decent, healthy choices Let yourself off the hook. Allow time and truth to occur. And the truth will set you free. Remember that. The truth will always set you free. If you're not sure about something, if you're feeling bound up, if you're feeling weighed down, the truth will always set you free. So there is a lie in there somewhere. All right. Um... Doesn't Paul hit at some duality in us when he says, I beat my body and make it my slave, and our potential fruitlessness when he says, I don't shadow box, and even Jesus said, count the cost. Okay, good. These are great questions. Um, I beat my body, or, you know, I don't think Paul literally took out a whip and started beating his body like the young monk, uh, Martin Luther, who would beat himself until he was bloodied and lay out in the snow until his fellow monks would pull him in Side and say, wow, what a dedicated, committed, religious person. 
uh, what Paul is really saying is that he doesn't want to be disqualified to share the gospel. It's not disqualified for heaven. It's not disqualified with his sonship as a child of God. But let's be honest. I mean, if Paul was a drunkard and he was sloshed and telling you about Jesus, if I had rolled in here for three days and had my Jack Daniels over here and my Jim Beam over here, and, you know, I just took a swig after every question and said, how glad you guys are here tonight. I mean, what, how, much, how much would you desire to, to listen to what I'm saying? It makes no sense. So uh, he didn't want to be disqualified from sharing the gospel and earning people's earning the right to be heard. And so he buffeted his body, not to mention he's a child of God with a new heart, a new spirit, God's spirit living in him. And so to offer his body to God uh, and exude self-control instead of offering his body to sin and exude lack of self-control and chaos, uh, it just makes all the sense in the world, doesn't it? As far as count the cost, I mean, Jesus is talking to unregenerate Jews. They don't have a clue about Pentecost yet. They don't have a clue about the new covenant. They don't have a clue about Christ in them yet. So, hey, do you like your current life? Count the cost. Do you like where you're at? Do you like spiritual death? Do you like life after the flesh? Do you like uh, having what you have? Or come unto me, all you who are tired and weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you something different. So count the cost. This isn't about a believer having to be strong enough and committed enough and dedicated enough. This is Jesus talking to people who don't even have him yet. And he's basically saying, hey, assess where you're at. Are you interested in something new and better? I've come to give you life more abundant. In your books, you mention your past addiction to witnessing to unbelievers. Since this naked gospel journey, you'll notice I am fully clothed. Since this naked gospel journey began, how do you see it affect the idea of witnessing to the unbeliever? Great question. Um, you know, I, I've noticed that as far as sharing your faith with an unbeliever, um, there are surprisingly few references to it in the New Testament. I mean, I challenge you to actually uh, investigate that for yourself. I'm, I'm certainly, don't hear me at all saying it's unimportant. It is important. Um, but I find it interesting that there is so much about Christ and also about this well-rounded life. The fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is not witnessing and Bible study. The fruit of the Spirit is not witnessing and church attendance. There is an entire um, character of Christ that is worked in us as the fruit of the Spirit. And witnessing, you know, sharing your faith, if you want to call it that, witnessing is an interesting word. I mean, we are His witnesses, period. That's your identity. Your identity is that you are a witness. You are an ambassador. It is built into you. Everything that you do and say can be of him. So you are a witness and an ambassador, even when you don't use the name Christ, just loving people and giving a cup of water in his name. We are his witnesses. But I would say that, you know, when the scriptures say, be ready, I love this, be ready to give an account of the hope that is within you, but with gentleness and respect. See, and that's where I went wrong. See, I, I wanted to tell you about Jesus, whether you wanted to hear it or not. There was no gentleness, no respect. It was about me and what I'm doing and how much I'm doing it so that I can be right and feel right and go to sleep at night and when my head hit the pillow, I would feel like I had done enough. And that's works righteousness. And when the Bible talks about us sharing our faith, God's not desperate. God's not, you know, frantic and desperate and sweating it and going, oh my goodness, when is the world finally going to hear about me? You know, I'm depending on Dave. Without Dave, without Rick, what would I, without John, what would I do? <laughs> and so we don't have a desperate God. 
but it says, be ready to give an account of the hope that is within you. I love that. Number one, do you realize how good it is? It's a hope within you. Number two, are you ready? Meaning, are you equipped to talk about how amazing it is? You don't have to be a Bible teacher. But look, I mean, wow, Jesus died on the cross, took my sins away. I had tons of them, let me tell you. Still mess up all the time. And wow, I am so grateful that, you know, he took all my sins away. That's my hope. And by the way, you know, I've got total assurance, rock-solid confidence that I know where I'm going when I die. And in fact, I've got the best life possible right now having him live in me. Man, I'm grateful for this. Wow. I mean, that's the hope that's within you. I just shared it in 38 minutes, 38 seconds. I just shared it. So be ready to give an account of the hope that is within you but with gentleness and respect. So the pressure's off. I don't have to cram it down people's throats. Um, I just, you know, some people don't want help. Have you noticed that? You try to help people that don't want help, it doesn't work. Then you need help, right? Because you're trying to help somebody that doesn't want help, and now everything's getting awkward and weird. All right, well, I'm going to wrap up here in about uh, five minutes. We'll quit and I'll go home. I'm going to the hotel to get in the hot tub. Is that sin? Am I allowed to? Yeah. Uh, Because I want to make sure it's spirit, not flesh, you know. Does the New Testament start at Christ's death or at his resurrection? It starts at his death. Um, I know what you're getting at because we want to make sure the resurrection's stressed and it's really important. But I have to go with the scriptures. Like I'm not just like, you know, saying stuff that sounds cool. Uh, Hebrews tells us that a covenant begins when there's a death, not a resurrection. So even though Pentecost is really important, the resurrection is important, Pentecost is important, that's the first evidence that we see people born of God's spirit, the indwelling and the resurrection is awesome. What starts all of that is the death of Christ. That is the dividing line of human history. Is it possible to ever achieve holiness? We are told to always achieve this goal to be an active Christian. Man, I have got some great news for you. You, as a person, are completely and perfectly holy. You know what holy means? Set apart. That's all it means. It doesn't mean real rigid and boring. See, I grew up thinking, man, if you're holy, you are just as boring as it gets, man. Hey, you want to go play basketball? No, I'm in the Word. (laughs) You're in the Word. Well, you're in the Word, but you're boring. All right. So... Holy means set apart, and it's the same as the word sanctified. Now, let me, let me say a little bit about this. Um, you know, there's a popular idea called progressive sanctification, okay? And what I think has happened with this term, progressive sanctification or progressive holiness, is, let me say first what, what I believe is biblical. There are two kinds of holiness, in the Bible are two kinds of sanctification. But they're different than you might think. The first one is me. And the second one is my attitudes and actions. Okay. Now. You as a person. Are sanctified. Do You realize that. That First uh, Corinthians and Hebrews. They both say. You have been. Past tense. You have been sanctified. So. Someone who tells you, no, no, you're teaching that, you, that you've been sanctified, already sanctified. You tell them, yes, I already have been sanctified. I've been set apart. But see, what they think you're saying is you, that you, there's no growing. It's, there's no learning, that you're just perfect in everything you do. No, I'm not saying that. I'm saying me as a person, I have been sanctified. But then the Bible says, be holy in all of your behavior. So not every one of my attitudes and actions has been set apart, but I have been set apart. When Christ comes back, I'm heaven ready. He's not going to say you're 62% set apart so you can't come yet. 
you're set apart. You're reserved for God. Your attitudes and actions are being set apart, but you are set apart. Now watch this. We got these two things. Me and my behavior. Now, if I merge these together and only teach one type of sanctification, then I end up with this weird thing where you are progressively getting more holy. You are progressively getting more sanctified. You are progressively getting more reserved for God. Not true. You are holy, righteous, blameless. You are the righteousness of God. You are fully set apart as a person. Fortunately, you are not what you do. You are not the sum total of your behavior. That's works righteousness, and that that would be works holiness. So separate, divorce who you are from what you do and understand the difference. I have been sanctified by one offering. I have been sanctified. You know, you were alcoholics. You were drug addicts. You were this. You were that. But you were washed. You were justified. You were sanctified. It all happened at salvation. Now, be holy in all of your behavior. So I hope that helps uh, with the confusion on that issue. Um, All right. Well, what would you say to someone who says they are glad they go to a church that speaks truth about what sinners we are? Um, I'd say they got a problem. I mean, kind of messed up, you know, like, why am I glad You know, I've met folks who measure how good a sermon is by how bad they feel when they leave. Man, that was a great sermon. I feel terrible. (laughs) I feel so convicted and dirty, and now I'm going to really do it this week. And so the assumption is, is that if I feel dirty and I feel guilty enough and I feel bad enough, then emotionally I'm going to be charged And I'm going to go out and live this life. And you know that lasts about 12 hours. And then you're back to the same old, same old, same old, same old. See the assumption is that guilt causes us to say no to sin. And the Bible says it's grace not guilt. Grace teaches us to say no to sin. And to live godly upright lives. Well, it's, uh, it's been a great time. I'm going to stop there, and I've got a few left in my hand, but I'm not going to take more time tonight. I'm just going to uh, stop here and say uh, thank you. It's been a pleasure to be with you guys this weekend. I'll take some more time and hang out with you in the lobby there, but let me just go ahead and pray to close us for the night. Father, we thank you uh, for your word and for your spirit. We thank you that the truth does not disappoint, that you always do set us free just as you promised. We thank you for the assurance that we have, the hope that is within us. We thank you for the awesome power of the gospel message. We thank you that it is all about a person living in us. We are so grateful for Jesus, this high priest of this new covenant of grace, We thank you, Father, for all that you are and all that you've made us to be in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you, guys.